you hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. Welcome back to another episode of Queer Money. We have an extra special show for you today. If you're LGBTQ, today's guest has been integral in getting you and us the rights and privileges we have today. And he's vowed to continue that fight until we achieve full equality. Tim Gibb was one of the co-founders of Quark and Quark Publishing. He eventually sold his half of the business for a reported $500 million and has since used his money to advocate for LGBTQ equality throughout the country. We talked to Tim about how he started Quark, what his struggles and successes were both as a business owner and as a gay man, and the number one reason he feels he's successful today. It's his tenacity and willingness to go to the edge to see what burnout looks like, because you cannot build a multi-million dollar business without hard work. And stick around to the end to learn how Tim set the stage for making me feel like the prettiest boy ever one night. <laughs> Lastly, this episode of Queer Money is being brought to you by the Debt Free Guys 7-Day Debt Freedom Challenge coming soon. I mean it. It's taken a lot longer than we expected, but it is coming soon. Let's get on with Tim. There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. This is Queer Money. Well, welcome, Tim Gill, to the show. Thank you so much for joining us, Tim. You're welcome. We love having you. So would you mind giving our listeners and readers a little bit of an understanding of who you are? You founded Quark. What is that and how did you get started? So I founded a company called Quark back in, I think it was about 1982. And it, it started actually by doing word processing for a computer that people have probably never heard of called the Apple III. They sold 120,000 units. But eventually we did a desktop publishing product called Quark Express and we did that for Macintosh and it actually made us very successful. So we grew to probably over a thousand employees. We had translations of the product in 13 languages and we had operations in I think five or six countries. Wow. Wow. I didn't know it was that big. Yeah, I didn't realize it was that big either. (laughs) (laughs) That's crazy. So just, I don't know that I completely understand. So it's desktop publishing for traditional publications? Yeah, it was built, I don't want to say pre-internet because the internet has existed for a long time, but certainly when the predominant media that people used for getting their news was print publications. And so it was really all about print publishing, whether it was brochures or newspapers or magazines, there were something like 15,000 newspapers in the U.S. that actually used it. Gotcha. Okay. So your end clients were for newspapers traditionally? Newspapers, churches. So it was everything from newspapers, from Time Magazine to, you know, little one-off newsletters and such. Gotcha. Gotcha. Makes sense. Yeah. We have a, so we have a Queer Money Facebook group, private group for some of our listeners and readers. And a couple of the people actually were in publishing, and a woman just retired from publishing last week. And when we let them know that we were interviewing you, she got all excited. (laughs) (laughs) I can't wait to hear this interview. (laughs) So if I understand correctly, you started Quark with a $2,000 loan from your parents. Is that correct? Yeah. I also had some money in my checking account, but I actually never bothered to balance my checking account. So it was whatever I had in my checking account plus $2,000 I borrowed from my parents so that I could buy a printer. (laughs) <laughs> oh, wow. That's awesome. So what was that? I'm curious what that moment was like when you went and asked for that loan, because I, I can imagine going to my father asking for a loan. It probably would be a little bit daunting. And he'd have a million questions. You know, what was that moment like? And were you certain that you had something big here? No, I was certain I had something I wanted to do. When Quark was founded, essentially, I was fired from my prior job 
the company that I was working for was running out of money. And it was like, they could let me go or they could let one of their board of directors go. So you can guess who they elected <laughs> to let go. But right. no, it wasn't daunting at all. I just thought about it for a while and they asked me a few questions and made the loan to me. And I paid it back in about three or four weeks. But the fascinating thing was years later, they were talking to me and they said, well, we thought we'd never see that money back. <laughs> <laughs> How many parents say that, right? <laughs> it always intrigues me with all this, so many success stories how integral moms and dads were in that. Uh, you know, you have Steve Jobs where he was starting, they started in their garage. Not too dissimilar story for Bill Gates. And it sounds like your story is somewhat similar. Were you somewhat anxious to ask your parents about the loan or were you pretty comfortable with it? No, I mean, no, not really. I've always had a good relationship with my parents. I mean, I figured if they didn't want to make me the loan, they would just say no. <laughs> right, right, right. Absolutely. So when you when you asked for that, so you had something, a passion you wanted to pursue. Did you mm -hmm. envision it becoming what it eventually became? Oh, not at all. I mean, in some ways, what happened after I was fired from that job was I interviewed a couple places and I was turned down. One company said that they didn't think I had the necessary skills to work for them. That company, uh -huh. of course, no longer exists. So the introvert in me said, I really hate interviewing. And so maybe <laughs> if I start a company, I won't have to interview anymore. <laughs> That's awesome. That's and it just kind of grew from there. I can relate with, relate to you. I find it very difficult to talk to people, especially in a group or people that I don't know. So I can relate and understand where you're coming from. But at the same time, there had to have been a lot of fear around starting your own company because... You do have to talk to other people. You have to do the sales process yourself, right? So you're still having to talk to people. You had to have some sort of courage to be able to do that. Well, I think to start with, you're assuming that I was not so naive that I didn't think about that. And I didn't <laughs> think about that. But the other thing was that the initial sales process for us, because we had essentially a list of all the Apple dealers in the U.S., was sending people letters. So it wasn't an outbound thing where I was calling people. It was an inbound thing where they were calling me. And that's a lot easier. Mm -hmm. So I think this is interesting. So you got let go from a job and granted it wasn't because of poor performance, but for other reasons. And then you started the job hunt, which is can be a blow to the ego sometimes and a little bit daunting for anybody, even if you are an extrovert. Were you in a space of, how were you feeling at that time when you decided, when you were struggling finding a job elsewhere? and thinking about pursuing your own passion. Where did you find the courage or how were you able to overcome any sort of limiting beliefs that you might have been experiencing at that time? I don't know that I had any limiting beliefs. And you're conflating two things. I wasn't thinking about pursuing my own passion at the same time I was searching for a job. I was searching for a job until I got disgusted with it. And then I decided <laughs> that I should do something. And there was actually a dealer, a local dealer. He had been selling Apple Threes. And Apple had been promising that there would be a word processor for the Apple III ever since it was introduced. And they didn't have one. So he said, I will loan you an Apple III if you will build me a word processor. And so in a sense, the first product we did was something that someone else asked for. It wasn't something that we chose. As opposed to, say, when we got to Quark Express, and Quark Express was originally supposed to be a very high-end word processor, and it just got bigger and bigger and bigger until it became a desktop publishing system instead. Which is interesting. We find this so often the case, whether it's intentional or unintentional, that the more successful a company is, 
really what they're doing is they're finding the, the need in the marketplace, what people need and want, and they're fulfilling that need. A lot of companies today seem to do that very intentionally, but it sounds like yours was kind of happenstance that you fell into this opportunity to fill a need in the market and continue to fill that need as your company started growing. Yeah, I mean, initially, I was basically given a product to build by someone. And then what happened is that I cannot think of a single product I've ever designed where what we ended up producing in the end was what I thought I was going to make in the beginning. <laughs> and that comes exactly from that, from listening to users and trying to discern out of all the different inputs you get, which ones are important, which ones are similar enough that they can be combined and make a product that's coherent as a result. I think that's a very good thing for our listeners, for us to hear, those of us who are starting our own businesses or trying to be entrepreneurs, is that we have to be flexible enough to allow the success to come in rather than rigid in what we want or what we have designed, because it may not fit the exact need of the marketplace. Sure. And I mean, if you're designing something that isn't something you use, and certainly a word processor was something I used, but when I got to building a publishing system, that wasn't something that we used in any meaningful way. And so it was really about getting input from Time Magazine, getting input from, at the time, the way that you produced output was to build your product in Quark Express and send it to someone who could produce high resolution output. And so we listened to those people a lot. And one of the important things that we discovered is if you can avoid a sales force, or at least a large sales force, that's kind of ideal. What you want to do is find a way to make your customers into your advocates. So they become your sales force. Absolutely. And I think that if that's something that it seems like more individuals are doing or businesses are doing through social media. They allow the word of mouth to spread and be their benefit and their sales force or their free advertising, so to speak. <laughs> Yes, exactly. What were those beginning years when you were starting off? Was Did you experience, because you were creating a product that somebody else requested and you were just getting started, did you experience a lot of mistakes and, and struggle trying to create the product that your, your market needed? No, I mean, a word processor, at least back in the early days, was really quite a simple thing. And so it wasn't terribly hard to meet those needs. What troubles, if any, or struggles, if any, did you experience in those early years? Oh, let me think. So, so my degree is in mathematics and computer science. And so, as you might guess, like the idea of making something, using outside vendors, I had had no experience with that. I'd had no experience with doing or limited experience with doing accounting. And so I had to learn all of those skills. And so that was kind of the thing that was not so much a struggle as kind of an interesting way that I evolved over time as I was forced into doing all these things that I had no experience with. Right. Yeah. Entrepreneurs seem to, in many ways, become jack of all trades, right? <laughs> Especially at the very yeah. beginning when you don't have the, the income or the initial funding that allows you to just go out and hire everybody. No. I mean, so the, our first office was really my spare bedroom. And <laughs> it had stacks of boxes and stacks of styrofoam packing peanuts and tape. And so I had to do everything from answering tech support to packing boxes. And I think this, so you want to project an image that you're bigger than you are at first. And so 
my phone was by my bed and I remember getting a call at like two in the morning and I picked it up and said Quark and someone had a tech question. And so I do the tech question from bed at two in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's quite fun. It's a far cry from the glamorous entrepreneur or startup life that many people would like us to believe, right? (laughs) I suppose if you have venture funding, it's a little different. But uh, when you really have $2,000 from your folks, that's kind of not an option that you have. Right. Part of the reason why I have to laugh is John and I are sitting in the closet of our spare bedroom. And it's a walk-in it's, closet. It's our, <laughs> it's our podcast booth, but we have we literally have blankets hung up to as soundproofing until we can actually afford a studio. Afford a studio <laughs> of our own. <laughs> so I can relate to the boxes with packing tape and all of that surrounding you because that's what we have right now. So I'm curious. When you were starting out, you had to be jack of all trades. That can sometimes be daunting because there's this pervasive feeling that I've got to do everything right now. And you can get consumed in thinking everything is super important right now. How did you decide what was most important? What required most of your focus? Since we were only doing one product, so it's like manual diskettes, it wasn't that complicated. The only problem was how much time do I have to spend doing business things and how much time do I have to spend for coding? And at some point, of course, we hired people to help with those things. I think at Christmas, the end of the first year, we had 13 people working in a one-bedroom apartment that was like four floors below my apartment. <laughs> oh, wow. And then eventually we actually moved and took over my spare bedroom again. It was... Uh, Nice to have all those people, but 13 people in a one-bedroom apartment is a bit much. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. It sounds like some of those stories from Haight Ashbury when <laughs> some of the Grateful Dead and Fleetwood Mac were getting started. <laughs> 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 so you already alluded to this before, but I'd like to touch on it if we could. You were pretty confident in yourself and what you were doing. And, and David and I experienced, and it could be predominantly the people that we work with, but there's a lot of limiting beliefs in our community about what we're worth what we deserve, whether or not we're good enough. And it seems like much of that, though not all of it, can often be based in our sexual orientation and gender identity. Did you have any struggles with that and as it related to your career at that time? No, I really didn't. Before I worked for the company that fired me, the company that fired me knew I was gay long before I worked there because it was people I went to high school with. But I worked for HP before that. They didn't know I was gay because it was really irrelevant until one point when I was thinking about leaving and they were suggesting I could go into this other career, which would have sent me out into the boondocks. I said, you know, Mike, I'm gay. That's really not going to work for me. And then he thought for a moment, he said, well, we have an operation in San Francisco. So I never really had a sense that being gay held me back in any way. But it sounds like in your mind, it wasn't a concern at all. No, it really wasn't. So there was only one time that my sexual orientation really interfered with my business. And that was, at the time, we were using a distribution model that used the same distributors that Apple used. This was back before Apple brought their distribution in-house. And they found out I was gay, and they were from the South. They were based in Florida, and they said they would no longer carry our product because I was gay. And so that cut off one section of the country for us very briefly And then I think about three or four months later, Apple brought all their distribution in-house. And so that company was fired and it didn't matter anymore. (laughs) They got theirs, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. In Colorado, a while back, we had something passed called Amendment 2, which essentially undid all the local and statewide non-discrimination ordinances. 
And after that happened, every time I would go out and speak or do any kind of public appearance, I'd find some way to kind of mention in passing that I was gay because I think 80% of people at the time said they didn't know anyone who was gay. And I thought, well, I can fix that, at least for my market. And so there was a like an International Press Photographers Association event in Denver that I was keynoting. And someone asked me a question, which was, you know, which newspapers do you read? And I said, well, I actually don't read any major newspapers because my boyfriend gets paranoid about some of the things that are reported in those. And so it's those kinds of things, or I would kind of often use my boyfriend as a way to talk about the fact that I was gay. Yeah. So Amendment 2 was early 90s. Was that correct? Yes. Yes, it was. And if I'm following correctly, that was sort of your motivation that evolved into the Gill Foundation, right? Yeah. So Amendment 2, after Amendment 2 passed, my business partner saw how upset I was. And he said that I should say that I would contribute a million dollars to convince people that discrimination was wrong. And going back to the comment I made earlier about not balancing my checkbook, and I said, gee, that's a lot of money. And then I realized that I had more than that in my checking account. And so it wasn't that much. And then the Gill Foundation was kind of funded by me as it went along for the first couple of years. And then I made a large cash contribution to it. About 60% of my net worth went to the Gill Foundation at one point. And I think at this point, we've given away close to between the foundation and political giving $400 million. Wow. Okay. So I have so many questions right now. (laughs) The first is, it sounds like you you didn't have any concerns publicly outing yourself wherever you were speaking or whatever circles you were running in. What was the reception like at that time? So it was a hot topic. And the net result was, you know, there were some people that said, great, we love you. We're going to buy your product. There are people that said, we hate you. We're not going to buy your product. There's a religious organization called Focus on the Family that was using our product down in Colorado Springs. They went on a search for family-friendly products, by which they meant products from companies that didn't have non-discrimination policies. And the number of companies in high tech that don't have non-discrimination policies was really, really small. So they failed in that, and they had to continue to use the products that were created by us heathens. (laughs) I know that it sounds like you were confident in the backlash that you might have received personally for coming out, but at that time, you were also responsible for helping other people put food on their table, covering their paychecks. Were you concerned with the backlash that your company might have experienced in the long run? No, I really wasn't. And my business partner was Iranian. He had experienced discrimination back in his home country, where a lot of his relatives were thrown into jail after the revolution. And so he was all in favor of me coming out as well. Ah, That's awesome. That's great. I see a lot of parallels. Our mentor in financial services was Jay Allen. He was an executive vice president at Charles Schwab at the same time that we were there. And He's been on our show a couple of times. But this, I see a lot of parallels in the confidence level of yours and Jay's sexual orientation, especially early on, because he came out in the 80s as well. And I just think that's so fascinating because a lot of the communication we get from our audience is that there, many people are still struggling with their sexual orientation and gender identity. And I love how we have two men here who have, for them, by and large, made that not a, an issue for them personally. And that seems to prove beneficial for both of them. Right. 
That's great. Well, and more often than not, we find that when we have low self-esteem or we're suffering from depression, many of those ideas or thoughts are ones that are contained inside our head, and a lot of people are not thinking those. We oftentimes come up with these scenarios or ideas in our head that this is what somebody might do or this is what somebody might say if I do this or that, and we know that those don't come to fruition. So Very often. Yeah, yeah, right. Especially the level of confidence, if you can can gain that level of confidence, that's what people are attracted to. People enjoy being around a person who has a level of confidence. So if we can train ourselves and use someone like Tim as an example. Right. So Tim, I'm wondering, in your experience, you've had a lot of experience. You're obviously a big influencer in the LGBT community and helping us all achieve equality. For the person who's listening to this podcast, who's sitting in the middle of the country and struggling with their sexual orientation or gender identity or thinking that they don't have any hope, what words of advice or inspiration would you have for them? So I, I suppose you were talking about my self-confidence around my orientation. And a lot of that came from the fact that when I came out in college, which was literally two weeks after I, I went to college, I went to the local campus. LGBT organization. My first word was hi, and my second word was hello. And then I shook for about five minutes while the guy man in the office talked to me about queer theory. And that calmed me down enough. And all of a sudden, having a community of peers made it so that I was confident enough. And I actually became their office manager. I spoke to classes about what it was like to be gay from all of my, you know, three or four months experience of being gay. <laughs> but, That's great. But that did a lot for me, and it made me really comfortable with talking about being gay. And I think it's really hard to, you know, it, it's not always pertinent to a conversation, but there's no reason that if your orientation fits into what's being talked about, that you should be afraid of bringing that up. And so... I will talk about my boyfriend. Now I would talk about my husband. Today actually is our nine-year anniversary. Oh, oh that's um, awesome. Congratulations. Yeah, I never thought I would get married. You know, just incredible that we've come to a point where people can do that now. Right. Yeah, Dave and I are, are shocked too. We, I, I can still remember sitting on our couch watching the news when the Supreme Court came down with this decision and we were just, I don't know, we couldn't wrap our, head, our heads around it. And we don't stay up late. We, go, we wake up at four o'clock in the morning, but that night we were up until I think past midnight. Yeah, right. Because <laughs> <laughs> we had to watch it all. Right. So, Tim, I do find it interesting that while you were in college, you did have a level of advocacy for the community. And then you went into the business world and you achieved something that very few people have done. And now you again are becoming a major or have been a major advocate for our community. It seems to to John and me that oftentimes at the college level and, and shortly after, there's a large number of individuals in our community that become consumed with advocacy, and that's that's as far as they can see. And they don't pursue opportunities outside of that. And sometimes that means that their level of income is held back, and that can cause them to have some financial issues. What was it like? How did you make that break and say, I'm going to pursue working and I'm going to start my own company? And you understood that you could still be an advocate as well. So, I mean, I didn't necessarily do a lot of both of those at the same time. So I was doing some advocacy while I was going to college. Then after college, I really was in the work world for a long time. And 
you know, one of the things that's interesting is you see a lot of people creating foundations or starting to give away money when they're very old. And it's often because they don't have a model of what it's like to give away money or to be involved. And so it's not until they have a sense of their own mortality that that happens. Mm -hmm. And for me, the passage of Amendment 2 was that event that caused me to realize that I couldn't be just involved in doing business anymore, but I also had to be involved in advocacy. Right. Personally, I was I lived in Denver when that passed. And although I was not out, it was startling to me to see that happen. And I personally have watched a number of the things that you and the Gill Foundation have done in the state of Colorado. And I have to say thank you so much for what you've done, because I think back to I think it was referendum I when we were talking about civil unions in Colorado, you were a huge supporter of that. And I think of all of the things that have happened in this country around the LGBT community, there are so many of those changes that have happened because of individuals like you, you yourself and individuals like you that have been able to fund, whether it's boots on the ground or politicians in place that have helped those things happen. So first up to say thank you. And what lesson can the rest of us learn from from what you've done? So change doesn't happen by just one kind of thing, right? It's not just giving money. It's not just knocking on doors. It's not just lobbying politicians. It's all of those things. Mm-hmm. And at any given point in time, it might be that a different mix of, say, philanthropy and politics is necessary in order for you to succeed, a different mix of making contributions versus talking to people one-on-one. And so the main thing that really a community has to develop is the ability to do all of those things and then to be able to deploy their resources essentially as the environment requires. I absolutely agree that we have to have multifaceted approach to the way that we are advocates. And so that means that some of us are advocates that are out there on the boots on the ground. Some of us are advocates in our ability to give money, and some of us are advocates in the way that we can actually connect with policymakers. So I'm going to jump to another question here that kind of plays into the idea of those of us who have this opportunity to be the funders, the ones who can actually make the money. What kind of habits do you have that have been integral in your success that those of us who want to mimic the path you've taken What habits of success could we copy from you? So I think when I originally started giving away money, I was very much about finding organizations that I thought were good, giving them money and trusting them to do a good thing. And so the net result was my philanthropy was somewhat scattered. And what I've evolved to over time is saying, this is the goal I wish to achieve. Which organizations will help me achieve that goal? If you have large amounts of money and you don't find an organization that can achieve that goal for you, you can create them. We've created a couple of organizations for that purpose over the years. But it's really important that you don't just give to something that's good because there are a lot of things that are good. But in the end, you kind of would like a result. Mm -hmm. And so trying to decide what the result is so that you can tailor your funding to get that result is, I think, part of really smart philanthropy. That makes a lot of sense. It sounds a lot like Stephen Covey's Think with the End in Mind. What is your end goal? And is there an existing foundation or organization that can help you achieve that? And if not, and you have the opportunity, create that and and build that yourself. Right. 
Yeah. And the one thing you have to be careful of is that you don't, this happened to me at a cocktail party once. I said, it would be really neat if such and such. <laughs> and then like two weeks later, one of the people who was listening to me was an organization and he came back with a proposal for doing that. And I said, you know, that's really nice that you were paying attention to what I said, but this is not your area of expertise. Right. So you never want to push an organization to do something for you outside of their area of expertise. Yeah, right. That makes sense. Well, and I think on the flip side, it's important to not take the first opportunity that's presented to you because that first opportunity might not be in your best interest or the cause's best interest. I mean, there are a lot of people that often do the same or very similar things, and some of them are more effective than others. And there are a variety of tools you can use to determine who's more effective, including you know talking to your peers about who they give money to and why. Right. So you have a lot going on in your life today. You know, the Gill Foundation is doing a ton of work. You're, I know that I'm aware of you working on or starting at least one other business, JSTAR. I don't know if you're, my guess is you're probably working on, on more. How do you stay, what are your daily practices to stay focused and to stay sharp and to stay engaged? Do you have any rituals or habits? Other than Starbucks? <laughs> no, not really. It's, uh, I tend to be a bit obsessive when I'm doing something. And I would never want to change that about myself. So I will get up at four in the morning, work for a couple hours, go back, cuddle with the husband, get up, go to work. But it's just continuously working to achieve that particular goal and making sure that the tasks that I have are exciting enough to keep me engaged and not burnt out. And you know, I'm willing to walk right to the edge of burnout and look over, but you have, at some point you have to take a couple of steps back. I think that one of the things you're talking about here is commitment and tenacity, that I think that there's a, that is one of the keys to success. I hear so many times the individuals who have, you know, we hear this, that what do they call it, the 10-year overnight success? They have made the commitment to continue working to make sure that whatever their dream is, that they pursue that and that it actually comes to fruition. Sure. And I mean, there are always setbacks, right? Right. And it's, I can think of several times where there were setbacks. I was like depressed for, oh, I think about 24 hours one time after we actually had overtaken our competition. And the thing was, when you're like number two, you can take direction not only from your customers, but also from your competition. And when you're number one, you don't have that option anymore. So <laughs> I spent about two hours wandering around the neighborhood saying, how do I deal with the fact that I don't have a competitor who can give me a meaningful direction? That's interesting. How did you deal with it? I got over it. <laughs> you, just, <laughs> you, you really just you stop paying attention to that and you start paying more attention to your customers and what they need. God, so there's the jam. Focus on, on what the purpose is. Who are you serving? Yeah, that's great. Go back a little bit, if you don't mind, to the political. And then I have some questions from our Facebook group that I'd like to answer before, like to ask before we wrap up here. But where do you think we stand with the LGBTQ rights movement today? So marriage has been a great success so far. There haven't been any significant events that have undermined that. But what I think our opponents are working on more than anything else is how do we undermine gay rights more broadly? How do we undermine non-discrimination laws and things like that? And so the big challenge for us now is to focus on the fact that, yes, we have marriage. It's universal. 
you can still be fired from your job in 31 states if you're LGBT. And that is utterly unacceptable. And unfortunately, most of those 31 states are very, very red states. Right. And so the process that we have to go through to get non-discrimination laws in those is going to be very different. It's going to actually involve working with businesses in those states because they have the relationships with the politicians that left-wing groups will never have. And it is going to be a long slog, but hopefully it will be successful. And you know, we in those states that have rights where we can't be discriminated against, we owe it to the rest of the country to fix this because the rest of the country helped us get marriage. Right. They made contributions to all the organizations that got us marriage, and we owe it to them to make sure that they can live a free and open life in their state as well. Thank you. I think a lot of what you're, you're saying is people have heard in our podcast before from various guests and, and David and me, and that's part of why we do what we do because we know that there are so many people who are at risk of not being able to get housing or not be able to get a job. And we want to help educate our community, be fiscally responsible and prepared for whatever comes their, their way. And that's, that's part of our message. And that's also why we, we want to get more LGBTQ people in positions of corporate leadership so that they can have an influence in the businesses in the center of the country where our community is at, is at risk. So thank you for saying that. I think the other thing you, you want to remember is that you know, there's no state where magically, say in New Hampshire, all gay rights were won at once with one bill. Right. And so we're going to have little fits and starts, things that are passed that aren't complete, that maybe aren't even desirable. And as long as we stick to it and go back and fix those things, eventually we'll get the rights we need everywhere. I love what you're, what you're talking about here because it's, it's been my experience in life what you've said is that we make progress in many, many different ways. It's not just one giant leap. And we can't expect an all or nothing that sometimes we need to have some compromise or sometimes we need to take that first step in progress and then work on the second step rather than sacrificing any progress so that we can get the whole step. Yeah. I mean, when, when we do our analysis at the foundation, it's always how many people can we help how soon? And we know that we not going to be instant. We know that it's not going to be everyone. But I want to maximize the amount of help we can give to the maximum number of people. Well, it's Martin Luther King's long arc of justice. Right. <laughs> it's never quick. So two questions from our Facebook group real quick, if you don't mind. The first is from Allison. It's pretty specific. Allison is actually the one who retired from publishing a week ago. And she asked, what was it like to have Adobe come into your space with InDesign and what kind of risk or concern did you see for Quark when that came on the horizon? So actually, by the time Adobe came in with InDesign, that was about the time I sold the company. So I never really experienced what that was like for Quark. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was really interesting. After I sold Quark, because I'd been doing it for 19 years, I thought, I really just need a break. And I actually followed no news about Quark whatsoever. Mostly, I snowboarded and traveled. <laughs> for about a year, for about a year and a half, um, and then after that, I became bored and I started, you know, doing companies and things again. Do you pay any attention to the the publishing industry at this point? No, I really don't. The new company JSTAR is all about artificial intelligence and home automation, and so that's a brand new field for me. It's really exciting, and that is what consumes my time. 
And then um, Drew asks, many people say that when I'm finally successful, then I'll give back to the community and then I'll, I'll help out. How did you approach giving back and why? It sounds like you kind of got frustrated at one point and just dove right in, but how did you approach giving back? When I was growing up, I really never saw my parents give away money. So I didn't have built into me this sense that that was something you should do. And so I did it moderately. I did it when I was asked, but I didn't go and seek out opportunities to do that. And that didn't happen until a bit later. And it was even before Amendment 2, we had a group called Digital Queers, and its mission in life was to get computer software and hardware and money and to go to national LGBT organizations and basically fix their technology because they had really, really lousy technology. And so it was those kind of opportunities that other people were spearheading that they came to me and I worked with them to make that successful. Where can our listeners keep track of, of you or the Gill Foundation if they want to stay on top of things? And what's going on um, with JSTAR? <laughs> yeah, the Gill Foundation is gillfoundation.org. And JSTAR actually is josh.ai. Josh is the name of the product. I know it's a male sounding name, but you can give it a variety of voices and genders and so on. But it's just, I never realized the power of talking to my home until we built a product that let me do it. Oh, that's awesome. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're interested to hear how it turns out and the features that it has. I know that there seem to be a number of products out into the marketplace that are similar to that. So I'm interested to see how you're going to be in that competitive space. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be very interesting. I mean, this, essentially, the enabling technologies have only had the quality necessary to do this kind of thing in the last couple of years. And so, yes, it's a very competitive space. Nice. Well, we're looking forward to seeing what comes. And before we close out here, I want to I have to personally thank you for the most fabulous night of my life. <laughs> yeah, several years ago, you used to throw a Halloween party, and David and I won um, sexiest costume. <laughs> and I still this have is a lot of years ago. <laughs> we couldn't wear the outfit now, but I still have my sash, and I wear it once in a while. <laughs> Are you going to post that on your blog? <laughs> yeah, not only so. <laughs> but thank you so much for your time today. We know that you're super busy and you're doing a lot for our community. And we want to thank you for that. Thank you. And we, we appreciate it. If there's anything that we can ever do in our own little way to help you or the Gill Foundation, please let us know. Well, thank you so much. I've enjoyed it. Thank you, Tim, for taking the time with us and sharing your story and wisdom with our community. And thank you for all the work you've done for the whole LGBT community. Thank you to our listeners for listening to another episode of Queer Money. Please remember to like, comment on, and share this episode or any other episode in iTunes so that we can reach more LGBTQ people and help them follow in Tim's path of doing more and being more. Lastly, don't forget that this episode of Queer Money was brought to you by the Debt Free Guys 7-Day Debt Freedom Challenge that is coming soon. Thank you. Okay. We just serviced you. Now you get to service us by subscribing to this podcast on iTunes and signing up for the Queer Money Lifestyle Newsletter at queer.com money well i'm not really gay <laughs> would help me if i had a personal chef made all me all my healthy meals for me. right so instead i'll have a snickers tonight for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> the other end i like the butts so <laughs> yeah. uh. From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking Queer Money on the Road. 
Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.